Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, will long-lost paperwork clear the BBC of claims it coerced Princess Diana? Graham Norton jumps to Virgin as other notable names hang up their Radio 2 headphones. Spotify's multi-million dollar podcasting splurge continues. And we count the cost of overworked freelancers. Plus, Piers Morgan welcomes back cabinet ministers to Good Morning Britain, as only he can. And in the media quiz, it's congratulations to the winners at the virtual Edinburgh TV Festival Awards. That's all to come in today's media podcast. And joining me today, planning director at Edelman and host of the podcast Democratically 2020, Karen Robinson is back on the show. Hi, Karen. Hi, Ollie. I I note amidst your usual hour-long plus episodes of your podcast, uh, right there on the feed, (laughs) there was a notable seven-minute edition on November the 7th, simply titled We Won, four exclamation marks. Well, I felt I got the key point across in the title right there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I did record that when drunk. It's the first time I've drunk podcasted, so that was a, that was a thing. We used to record this in a bar. I mean, for years. Uh, <laughs> this is one of the first sober ones that we've done. Um, but I am curious for your view about what you think Trump might do next. Do you think he is going to start a TV network? I think it would. It's exactly the sort of thing he's likely to want to do. Yes. Um, you know, if you're being cynical, you could say he's been trying to devalue the Fox News brand in the last few months of his presidency, um, possibly in the interests of creating more of a space for himself to launch into that world. To be honest, I think he wanted to start a TV network in 2016 and was quite put out by having accidentally won the election. <laughs> um, so hopefully for him, he'll be he'll be back on track. All right. Uh, Our next guest is someone who doesn't need her own TV network because she has her own festival. Uh, It is broadcast consultant and director of Radio TechCon, Anne Charles. Hello, Anne. Hello. Lovely to be back. Uh, Lovely to have you here. You are limbering up for this year's big event, 30th of November, Radio TechCon. Tell us, tease us with something scintillating, some some steaming hot session you've got coming up for us. We are so excited this year. Every year is a great year, but this year um, we've turned the fact that we're having to do it online because of some reason, don't know, um, <laughs> around. And that's meant that we've been able to have some guests from other countries as well as our amazing UK-based guests. Yeah. And so our headline act include, uh, we've got behind the scenes of the infinite monkey cage and how they stayed on air. Uh, we've then got someone from Facebook talking about how they're doing the sound for Facebook Horizon and that VR system. And then our finale is Alexandria Perryman, who does sound for NASA. 
and she has just come off doing the SpaceX broadcast and she's going to talk about all the sound they do there, how they deal with getting signal up to the moon, how she trains the astronauts so that they can do their outside broadcast. I'm so excited. It's going to be brilliant. And yeah, I think this is the third consecutive year that we've had you on just before the festival. And I typically introduce you in a fairly glib way that suggests it's all a bit nerdy and geeky, the kind of stuff you're into. And maybe in normal days it, it and is. And every year you're wrong. Um, <laughs> but, well, it's certainly perceived that way, but I would say there has been a shift now, hasn't there? Because this world of remote working and trying to get the best sound out of difficult broadcast situations and using technology in radio... That is now the place where everybody is. Yeah, and I, I don't think that our networks would have stayed on air without without the broadcast engineers who've been working round the clock and, and keeping everyone connected and um, they deserve all of the praise. Um, so yeah, we'll be doing we'll be doing a whole range of sessions. Uh, all the information's on the website, but definitely make sure you're there because it's going to be a load of fun. And that website is? It's radiotechcon.com. Lovely. Uh, and finally, the grand dame of the series is back on the show, journalist and official historian of Channel 4, Maggie Brown. Welcome, Maggie. Hello. I'm very pleased to be back. It's lovely to have you here. It was back in April when we last spoke, and my question to you then was, how is lockdown treating you? So seven months later, I'm going with, how is lockdown treating you, Maggie? Well, actually, I'm rather fed up of it, to be honest, but it's been quite good for me because it's been a discipline um my uh, channel 4 book the story of channel 4 from um, big brother to the great british bake off it's all plug for me was due to come out uh, on the 12th of november but it's been postponed by i think by covid really um so many books i think are being held up at the moment so um i have uh, a guarantee it's it's coming in the early spring online and in uh, you know normal published book form um, and after that. So um, I have been busy just updating it a bit because, as you know, this has been a tremendously difficult year for all broadcasters, but Council has been hit the worst, actually. You must be sitting there just wishing that John Whittingdale stopped saying things about privatising Channel 4 because you must have to keep updating it. Well, I mean, you can't. History is the, the reasons why things have happened, and it's never going to be contemporary. And I think one has to just accept that if it's proper history. And I do write proper history, you know, the footnotes and things. But I do agree. I, I, the last attempt between 2015 and 17 looked as if it had put a stake through that, through privatization or the introduction of private capital into Channel 4 for the time being. He has uh, revived it at the beginning of October at a, a fringe meeting with the Conservatives, um, uh, you know, virtual conference. Uh, he sounded a little bit more, uh, I, think he, I think the mood has changed a bit because, to be honest, uh, given the current uncertainty, it would be very hard to value Channel 4 anyway at the moment if one doesn't really know how severe the recession is going to be that's obviously coming up and the impact on advertising. Yeah. Well, listen, when the book comes out, can you invite us all? Let's hope that this is all over and we can all have a dirty martini. To the, but this the is the launch. point, you know, I'm hoping that when it comes out, we will have, they, well, this is what Bloom's do want, they want a proper launch. And um, I, um, I'm, you know, to be honest, um, I think that there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, a lot to catch up on. Channel 4 next week have um, a whole um, launch of, of what their full future looks like. So, um I think uh, I think for all broadcasters, there's big public service broadcasting review starting any moment. Um, there's going to be a lot to talk about. 
all right, let's get on with business and start with a story that is incredibly topical, yet also somehow 25 years old. Uh, and that is the furore surrounding that panorama interview uh, between Diana, Princess of Wales, and Martin Bashir. Uh, and what is the latest? Um, I was kind of, I was thinking I was 12 or 13 when the interview went out. I remember it being a really big deal at the time. Um, and this all seems to be around whether or not Diana was coerced into the interview. Uh, they're saying that she wasn't and there's evidence to say she wasn't. Um, and I suppose it's all around ethics, isn't it? And whether or not it's okay to um, lie in order to get someone to be interviewed, to which the answer is no. Evidence that uh, wasn't produced to the general public despite freedom of information requests, Karen. We still haven't seen this letter that Diana supposedly wrote that has now been discovered at the BBC. Why? To be honest, I'm a little confused about why they think the letter could possibly be exculpatory anyway, because if basically what happened is that Diana wrote a nice letter saying, thank you for that interview, it was fine, that's as it may be, she's perfectly, you know, she may very well have been happy with the interview. I expect she probably was. But the allegation is that they forged um, bank statements from um, from members of, of, of her family's household. Um, and, and I think that in itself, you know, whether or not Diana was happy with it would still have been a, a gross violation of journalistic ethics, not to mention just really messing with her mind to, to cause her to believe that the people close to her um, were selling information on her in the interest of then getting your own scoop is just all kinds of personally wrong. And it doesn't really matter if she was happy with the interview. That isn't what we're talking about. But Maggie, there's something about the relationship between the BBC and the royal family, isn't there? It comes up again in scandal after scandal that gives this story more traction than it would have if 25 years ago, a journalist from CNN had done exactly the same thing. Well, of course, you know, the BBC is the BBC and it's uh, part of the kind of very fabric of, of the UK. Interestingly, though, this particular um, interview, uh, whatever the circumstances of it, was, was seen by the, the Director General at the time, John Burt, as changing the relationship, really, um, between the BBC and the royal family, uh, because they had um, taken uh, a view, really, that Diana was perfectly entitled to uh, put her side of the marriage uh, in front of the public, given that Prince Charles had uh, revealed that he had been unfaithful and had a mistress, you know, Camilla Parker Bowles, um, a year before on the BBC as well. So it, it, it also marks, um, if you like, um, a, a, almost not a divorce between the BBC and, and, and the royal family, but it does, uh, it did cause an immense row and, and, um, just change really the, the, the nature of the cosy, the cosy relationship between the two institutions of, of the UK. And the executives involved went on to very illustrious jobs, publicly paid jobs, didn't they, within the BBC? Well, I, I want to talk about this actually because I knew um, Steve Hewlett well. So he was editor of Panorama, wasn't he, at the time? He was the editor of Panorama and he orchestrated the whole thing. And I had many dealings with him because I used to have quite a role. He then, after television uh, was writing for The Guardian, as you know, ran the media, the Radio 4 media show, which I was frequently a part of. And I asked him about this very subject because it was clear that something had happened. And I, I knew that there was this discontent about um, the, the way that the interview was obtained. And if you remember, there was a great deal of supposed um, 
backstabbing going on at Panorama that people were jealous that this unknown journalist who was really a freelance, not one of the grand members of Panorama, actually landed this interview. And I kept asking Steve about it, of course he's now, uh, as we know, deceased. Um, all the response I got was a sort of rebuff. And then the, then the letters 23 million. And that really, I think, sums up what uh, they, how they saw this interview. They saw it as the scoop of the century, the of the century, and they 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 had amassed this huge audience for a current affairs show, and they were incredibly proud of this. And um, I think that that was the absolute um, reason, really, that everybody. Well, they didn't obviously want to own up to this fake invoice but they 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 were absolutely thrilled that they had landed this, this scoop uh i think though that there is a there's a flaw in the criticism that has now come out and i'm setting aside this breach of ethics and that is that one of the reasons people like dominic lawson and friends of uh diana um kind of um use this interview uh, or use the process is to, is to say that it, it made her paranoid etc she wouldn't have done it without uh this kind of prompt and that that then led to the death in in paris but if you actually watch that interview live which i did you know my eyes were out of stalks you didn't see you saw a pensive sad woman who seemed perfectly in control of both her emotions and her speech and was making her making her her really pretty pretty clearly and she chose someone like Bashir because he was actually not um dominant the the event he was doing a very professional interview with her and so i do think that you do have to bear that in mind i think it was i don't think she in fact, the story is that um, Bashir was being smuggled in to see her in, in the weeks before the interview as they arranged it. So I, I actually think she was, she was entitled to put her, her case in front of the public and the BBC facilitated it against the wishes and, and the advice of, of other people, including uh, Max Hastings, the editor of The Telegraph, who she consulted. So it's response to the humiliation of being in a loveless love triangle. And we do have to bear that in mind. I don't think that the means justified the end, but I am saying that the end was what Diana wanted. Okay, so that's something of a defence for people who feel sorry for Lady Diana. But what about the people who feel sorry, Anne, for Matt Whistler, who was the graphic designer who was effectively blacklisted from ever working for the BBC again? It's, it's very difficult to say that there's any uh, justification for that, isn't there? I don't know much about the, those circumstances. I guess some of it would depend on whether if he was just being asked to produce a graphic or whether he was being told exactly why the graphic was being produced, whether he's got any, therefore, editorial kind of responsibility as, you know, as a BBC person. If you knew that that was going on and it was in order to take part in a deception, you'd certainly be wanting to refer up. If a journalist on a programme just came to you as a graphic designer and said, can you make this graphic? you'd add it to your list of jobs for the day. You wouldn't be, I would guess, interrogating them in, as to why it was being made. I mean, Karen, that's the person that I feel sorry for. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you know, as an individual person, I think he's the person in this uh, in this scenario who's perhaps hard done by. I think it's true. I agree with um, Maggie's point that Diana was was eager to tell her story. Um, so I don't think necessarily um, that that she was manipulated into doing something she wouldn't have wanted to do anyway. Um, but I think you know the the the, the subterfuge is, is the wrong way of going about it. Um, and I do think that yes, it's an un, it's an unfair position to put a you know, frankly, junior graphic designer in to to ask them to do things that you know to be unethical, but they may or may not know to be unethical. It's kind of irritating, though, that this has all come out after Tony Hall has left as director general, because he was directly involved, wasn't he? And he brought Martin Bashir back into the BBC as well. But now it's kind of easier, isn't it, for everyone at the BBC to just say, oh, hands up, we made a mistake, let's do an inquiry. And actually, genuinely, it was nothing to do with them anymore. Mm. Yeah, 25 years ago this happened, right? So why is it all coming out now? It does feel a bit convenient. I mean, Maggie, you, you've got plenty of experience combing through the archives uh, as the historian of Channel 4, as we were discussing. What do you make of this bit of paperwork that got lost? Is, is that your experience, that broadcasters lose stuff that's really important? Well, no, I don't think that. Um, and in fact, well, it, of course, it depends on the archivist involved, but you would imagine that the BBC with a document like that would be most careful about it. I think it's very curious. Um, and I mean, there are um, whispers that perhaps it, it's a fake. I, I really, I really don't know. I would also add something that um, the the whole uh, attempt to sort of cover up was really um, involving most senior people, and I don't know how much um, because Steve. I really feel Steve Hewlett was the key to this, and he was a big uh, kind of bear of a man and I think that um, he kind of held the whole thing together and I find it very very interesting really that it's taken this long for uh, if you like a proper examination to be made of of such an important interview. Let's um, talk about uh, a different TV issue now but still to do with relations between um, TV and the government and and that is uh, what's been happening on Good Morning Britain this week Karen. Well, you can tell us what has happened after a break of 201 days. Well, after after a long boycott, the government finally decided that it would uh, it would again send uh, representatives of the government to be interviewed by Piers Morgan um, uh, on his Good Morning Britain show. Uh, they promptly sent Matt Hancock, who got apparently crushed by uh, Piers Morgan's questioning. Um, so they, the government might be second guessing that. But I think um, I think it, it it is extraordinary to me that in the first instance, the government felt free to, um, as a, you know, a a government that serves all of the people, that they felt free to boycott an entire television network's morning news program. Um, It's not only petty, it strikes me as also kind of irresponsible behaviour. Having said that, I have been interviewed by Piers Morgan and it was horrible and I don't blame them for not wanting to go on. I mean, you say the government. I mean, it seems fairly clear this was an edict that had come from Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings. No sooner had they gone than suddenly, presto, cabinet ministers are going back on Good Morning Britain. Do do you think, Maggie, that this is now the end of that chapter where, you know, this current uh, administration think it is reasonable to say flagship national news programmes are inaccessible to our talent? Well, I mean, it, it, it's not uh, a single instance. Um, I mean, this has been happening to um, the Today programme until uh, certainly uh, until the new editor was appointed. And it also has happened uh, or continues to, to some extent to happen to Channel 4 News. The whole point is really that 
television is there, or television news is there to bring uh, the politicians to the people. It's it's a very um, obvious way in which to explain your policies. And I find it all very petty, but it isn't unusual. And now it seems that they've kissed and made up. And it could indeed also have something to do with the fact that with um, the government in in rather a, a tight corner now, uh, Brexit hasn't been done. COVID-19 is still rampant. And um, you've got, uh, okay, Cummings and, and, and uh, the, 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 the head of communications have changed and we have a new Allegra Stratton coming in, um, you know, proposing a more um, open and, and less um, visceral kind of uh, way of, of dealing with things. And so they're maybe just trying to turn the page on that too. Anne, it's not just about um, Piers Morgan, because I think it is about him specifically. It's not just about him holding the government to account, which he does do journalistically, but also that he is tenacious and ranty. He's a controversialist. He's a shit stirrer, basically, isn't he? And you can understand, actually, if they were honest about it and held their hands up, that a cabinet minister might simply say, I don't want to be interviewed by him because he will not let me speak. There's no point wasting my time. Well, I would understand if one individual minister had fallen out with one individual presenter or felt that they were misrepresented or treated unfairly and had a legitimate concern. That this, as Maggie was saying, is something that's been going on on multiple outlets. The government has refused to put people up and you need to have that scrutiny because, of course, you can put stuff out on Twitter and you can have your own uh, one-way kind of broadcast that you completely control. But the whole point of public servants are that we pay for them and that some of that means that we need to, in a democracy, hold them accountable. And so they do need to go on to these things. And it's also... um, It shouldn't be being blamed on advisers leaving because who was deciding that the advisers had the final say? It's appalling. Indeed, that's a very good point. No, it is a good point. And you know, the other thing is, I'm I'm listening a lot to Times Radio in the morning, where I find that um, the interviewing is done at a certain length. It's done politely, but it's done, I think, with a great deal of expertise. And I'm finding it a very um, good way, actually, to start the morning and to be briefed properly on the news of the day. Well, the briefing is the point, isn't it, Karen? I suppose during a pandemic in particular, and actually almost for the viewers of Good Morning Britain in particular, who are still from families where they turn on their free view and go to Channel 3 and that's what they watch all day and that's their news, it's a huge issue if if the health secretary isn't briefing that massive section of the public. Well, I think that's right. I mean, the whole purpose of having, you know, the kind of proliferation of media environments that we have, people are going to different types of sources for different types of news and information. Um, Absolutely. It should be um, in the remit of the health secretary to go on to the Good Morning Britain audience and give them, which by the way, Matt Hancock failed to do, but give them a kind of top line briefing of where the nation is, reassure them about health. Um, The fact that Piers Morgan is a, a particularly tricky and I kind of think often obnoxious interviewer who, as you quite rightly say, would rather get his own ideas across than listen to those of the people he's interviewing, is 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 the government's problem to solve. It's not their problem to avoid. You know, you have to, as you approach an interview, a competent, um, you know, communicator will think ahead of time about what is this person's approach? How might I try and get across what I'm trying to get across? You've, you've got to do the work. And I think if you're not willing to do the work or kind of just absent yourself from the conversation 
um, uh, in a fit of pique or pettiness, then I think you're just not serving the country. Now, I mean, they can choose to not serve the country, but I think we should, you know, as as voters and as members of the wider public and, and the media industry, I think they should pay a price for it. I don't think it should be something that they um, that we just pass under pass pass off because it has long term implications um, if you're not communicating with the public. And even if one did the terrible thing of imagining oneself as Dominic Cummings. This was quite a short-sighted decision, wasn't it? Because, you know, if you're after those red wall voters who have just gone Tory for the first time, again, Good Morning Britain is the programme to go on to reach them, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's the thing. They seem to be perfectly comfortable passing up a lot of opportunities to speak to people, um, both both through Good Morning Britain and also, as Maggie points out, a number of other programs during the general election. They weren't willing to take tough questions from from Andrew Neil, I think it was. Um, so they're they're passing up lots of opportunities. They have decided that it is in their best interest to control their communications more. This is a familiar trend in politics. We're seeing it, frankly, on both sides of the ocean. Um, where politicians, not just on the right, but on, on all sides of the political perspective pers- spectrum, are discovering that they can be, in the short term, better off by speaking only to the audiences that they select in the channels that they control. That's, that's worrying in the long term. It's not great for our political life. Uh, well, we will be back with more media news after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Media Podcast is made in partnership with Rethink Audio, a group of award-winning podcast producers. Let's have a quick turn of the dial and hear what they've been up to this week. Everybody wants to do something. Both Democrats and Republicans believe that the tech platforms have grown too powerful, but that's where the common sense of the problem ends. The Sunday Times' Danny Forston talks to René DeResta about the misuse of data on social media for Danny in the Valley. What tips or tricks did you employ to bring people with you? Uh, I think it comes back to, as you say, great teams have made of great individuals. Jake Humphreys and Professor Damien Hughes talk to Sir Clive Woodward about how to achieve a high-performance life 
on the High Performance Podcast. You can't say this after that. Yeah, we can. And the 4F1 Sake team celebrate another record-breaking race by Lewis Hamilton. What a way to cement your seventh World Championship by lapping the other guy in the same car as you. <laughs> and much, much more. Maybe they can help you make your next podcast. For more information, head to rethinkaudio.com now. Welcome back to the Media Podcast. Maggie, Anne and Karen are still with me. Let's uh, tune our attention now to radio and podcasting. First up, Anne, some notable names leaving radio too. Tell us who. Well, I mean, the, the big one is Graham Norton is leaving. And he's not just leaving, he's leaving to go to Virgin Radio. And then the other announcement was Claire Teal. Do you think this is a case of budgets being restrained? And the BBC actually almost, I mean, obviously, Graham Norton had 4 million viewers and was hugely successful. So I'm sure they didn't want to see him go, but almost nudging him towards the door like we really can't afford this anymore. And it's embarrassing. Or do you think Graham Norton just said, I want to leave? I, I have theories on this. I don't know any of the um, you know dealings that were involved. Um, so I think that um, obviously Graham, Graham's still going to be doing the television programme for the BBC. And, for which his salary um, is unreported because he's paid through his own indie. Yeah, and I'm sure he'll still do some projects, other BBC projects. I think that you have got the the fact that the salaries have been, the high profile salaries have been an issue. You've then had the gender pay gap. And what that has meant is that high profile talent know that they're not going to get a pay rise. They're probably going to get a paid deduction. In the meantime, we now have three large commercial radio groups with money who are actively poaching former BBC talents because they can pay for that talent. So... Um, You've what you've seen, Eddie Mayer. We've seen loads of people. Each of those three commercial networks have taken talent, and we know that um, Chris Evans. Uh, there was an interview where Chris Evans interviewed Graham Norton about a book that he'd got coming out, and was definitely trying to to pitch for Graham Norton to move over. So I would guess that when contracts were up for renewal, people know when that's happening. Mike Cass would probably have arranged a meeting, and favourable terms, I'm sure, will have been agreed. Now I. I would be willing to bet that we will see similar moves from BBC staff, especially male BBC staff who are more high profile, um, leaving and being poached. I have no evidence for this whatsoever, but it would not surprise me if Mark Muldell didn't turn up on Scala or Times Radio or maybe LBC sometime soon. Ooh, good bit um, of gossip, yeah. Yeah, but that, based on just assumption. No, groundless. That's good. Retired. Yeah, no, no, good. Groundless assumption. <laughs> but I think I think that the chances of you've got the thing of high-profile staff being paid quite a lot and knowing that they're not going to get a pay rise. So if another company comes along and says, "Shall we? Shall we take your show and shall we pay you a lot?" Then you know why not? If you've been somewhere for ten years, why not try somewhere else? But it does mean an overhaul of the brand values, doesn't it, Karen? I mean, you work looking at this kind of you know public perception of various different media brands. With Virgin Radio, they I think their slogan was, or even is, all about the music. That's how they positioned themselves. And they got rid of personality-based speech broadcasters like Jamie East and Ian Lee that they had in their lineup a couple of years ago. Then they got Chris Evans. Obviously, all that went out the window because we got Chris Evans Monday to Friday. And now they've done it again with Graham Norton at the weekend. But do the listeners they're trying to cultivate who want to tune in to get the hits from the 90s, basically, do, do they want Graham Norton? 
Well, I think, you know, I think you put your finger on it there. People who want the hits from the 90s might want Graham, might indeed want Graham Norton um, and perhaps he fits in. I think, you know, I, I always like to see um, broadcasters look for fresher talent and, and you know, I think Graham Norton's fantastic. But, you know, I, I'm always of the view that, you know, it's perhaps more interesting to, to scout your own fresh talent and, 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 and people who might be in touch with the type of music they're playing. But I think for, for people who, like myself, I have to, I, I hasten to add, um, who are are interested in listening to kind of classic classic hits of the '90s um, and want to watch a television personality who is popular, you know, around the same time? Why not? Um, I don't think it necessarily conflicts with the brand values as long as what you're doing is um, getting the ethos of the same kind of music that you're trying to get across. So I think you know, it must be frustrating if you're already there and you're quite capable of talking, though. I mean, you know, you think about Amy Vose, who's now on in the evenings. She was part of Sam and Amy, hugely successful breakfast duo. They got her over and now basically don't let her talk. Someone else like Graham Norton, he's allowed to come in and talk. It's quite weird. Well, I do think, and that's kind of to my point about it's better, like just, I think, more interesting um, for you as a brand to create your own talent and grow it and nurture it and really put some time and attention into it. Um, I do get a little bit tired of the same five celebrities getting recirculated to every broadcaster all the time, where actually if you put a bit more focus on your 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 homegrown talent or seeking out new types of talent um, rather than just the same people who have been famous for decades you might be better off but broadcasters like a safe bet that's what they keep going back to what 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 feels safe but i guess it's not just about older listeners uh, and in terms of some of those music choices it's about younger listeners too because you know i i'm not even yet 40 and i listen to pick of the pops for example and i've noticed recently that they haven't been choosing a year that's pre about 1977 and that seems to me to be about trying to, you know, win over that audience who go to Radio 2 nowadays for Zoe Ball and Sarah Cox. But actually, I like listening to songs from the 50s, 60s and 70s, as well as songs from the 80s, 90s and today. And the whole point of Radio 2 is it's broad. It's narrower, isn't it, than it used to be? Well, but they, they do have quite a commitment to the, the more specialist stuff. And um, they have a good, and that's what makes them so popular, isn't it? It's the Radio 2 is the classic thing that if you were pitching it as any organisation, everyone would say, don't be ridiculous, it would never work. And it's the most popular radio station in Europe. So um, you have to, I suppose, make sure that you're keeping a fresh audience coming in. I think the BBC as a whole and radio as a whole completely underserves an older demographic so not not people like you who like music from the 50s and 60s because it's great but just an older demographic full stop the very loyal radio audience with money to spend and they're completely ignored and i don't understand why sticking with radio briefly uh, the audio content fund is getting an additional 400 grand as well and tell us about that where's the money coming from how's it going to be spent i think it's coming from is it the dcms who have handed it is some it over? is coming from yes. her majesty's government yes hurrah um and so this is really good it's 400,000 pounds and that's it's one of those things, if you invest in radio, as I keep trying to explain to people, if you invest in radio, it doesn't need to be that much to have a massive impact um, because we're not paid enough. So um, that this this can go towards all kinds of programming. It's, it's mainly for sort of public sector style programming on commercial radio. And so that means that it also supports the independent sector. Community radio groups are also able to bid for it. I think one of the most high, high profile uh, winners from the last round would have been Absolute 40s, which was a pop-up station that happened to celebrate 
VE Day. So it's it's always good to see funding coming into the radio industry because a little really does go a long way. Well, it wins awards, doesn't it? And it's a nice story for Bauer and Global and stuff to say, look at this sort of interesting stuff we're doing that's away from our usual commercial brief. But it's, I presume, not that popular, which is why it wouldn't be funded by a commercial station normally, this kind of stuff. Well, it is frustrating because I get very fed up with the large commercial groups constantly saying, oh, we can't afford to do stuff. You don't, you can, you just choose not to. So it is, it is annoying that they aren't choosing to do this content by themselves because it's interesting and compelling. And it's actually, if you make your own content, it's so much easier to leverage and to share on social media and to repurpose in other ways. Um, so it is frustrating that this is having to be our tax money then coming back into a commercial venture. But on the other hand, if we're keeping lots of independent production companies going and making sure that there is the option to make content that is not just for the BBC, then that's a good thing. And Karen, in podcasting, Spotify have just spent $235 million acquiring Megaphone. What's that? <laughs> well, Megaphone, first of all, I was unsure about this story until I discovered that they used to be called Panoply, and Panoply I know a bit better. Um, but it's a company that has um, multiple uh, podcast-oriented bits of technology in particular. I think we're quite hopeful about their um, some work that they're doing to improve ad insertion to kind of change the way that um, that micro-targeting operates in the podcast, in the podcast world. Um, so I think that's going to be really interesting. Spotify has been making a really big play for podcast over the past year or two, buying up lots of um, lots of people. I mean, they bought up Anchor, my podcast platform, lots of others. Um, so clearly they see a huge future here. Um, and I think the question of whether having the technology in place will will indeed give Spotify the, the leverage that they want is going to be a really interesting one to watch. Yeah, I mean, Panoply was the brand, and wasn't it, when they were a bit more customer-facing and they meant a certain type of programming included the Slate uh, programs from the States as well. But uh, Megaphone, really, nowadays, the company is a dynamic ad insertion company. What's what's special about them? Why are they worth $235 million? Everyone's doing dynamic ads, aren't they? Well, I suppose it's because they are already quite embedded into the Spotify technology, uh, Spotify platform already, and they specialise particularly in, in podcasts. I mean, good on the founders that's going to be a good christmas isn't it everyone's going to be wanting a nice present <laughs> from you <laughs> my my daughter my daughter works in this and um what it's all about is it's out of out of home uh, audio and just monetizing it that's what's really going on and making it more personal too yeah well, i mean it's targeted as you said but it's also monetizing uh in, in a in a very serious manner and uh it's uh, it's been driven by various uh, acquisitions, not just this. And um, it's it's one of the growth areas. I mean, you've seen the way in which YouTube and, and all sorts of um, online uh, sites, etc., are able to monetize uh, content. It's it's just that this is the latest iteration of it. It's, it's audio, out-of-home audio, that however it's uh, created or delivered, it, it can have a value to somebody. As, as somebody who's who's worked on the advertising side and thinking about media planning. I think it's it's quite interesting that really successful and really clever micro-targeting of the type that's enabled by good um, targeting within podcast media, in many ways, is kind of 
moving away from the direction of the media industry, which is increasingly media agencies, they really just want to buy massive, um, massive buys and stick the stick their advertising everywhere. And I feel that's kind of unfortunate because we now have technology such as what, what Megaphone can do that can allow you to be really clever about finding the right fit between audience and um, and content. And I, I hope that actually that's what winds up happening is, is something really smart and clever. I suspect that what's going to happen is that we just get flogged the same ads in mass media buys to, to, through every podcast that you listen to. Um, we'll see. And I wonder if the sophistication actually might come from Spotify's data, not from megaphones. Because after all, it's Spotify that knows what room of the house you're in, uh, you know, what music you were listening to that day before you press play on the podcast you're listening to, um, you know, what you've been listening to for the last 10 years. Their data is huge, isn't it? They've got your credit card info. They've got all sorts of stuff. Whereas other dynamic ad insertion companies, really all they have from MP3 data is what store you were in, you know, was it Apple or Google? Uh, what phone were you using and where are you in the world? And that's it. It's actually not that sophisticated, is it? If you're trying to target groups, you just have to go on what you think the show is. Well, it will be interesting to see what it means from a content creator point of view uh, about whether or not you have to make different versions of your show to make the ad inserts work in different places. I suppose you you can guess a bit more by the type of topic that the podcast has got. And I suppose this is about people listening in the walled garden of of the Spotify app and the Spotify ecosystem, which means that you've got more control over what little markers and things you put into place. Um, personalization is personalization is what podcasting does really well, the kind of the niche casting thing. And so this seems like a, a good move, but I'd be fascinated to find out how they're actually doing it under the bonnet. And we're seeing a little bit of this in radio as well. So for example, Bauer for several years have had the option that if you log in to listen online that you get fewer adverts but they're more targeted at you so it's really also about the round tripping of data so um you and that's been the problem for podcasting as a whole that it's you don't necessarily know who your audience is which is why so many platforms want to force you into their own app so that you can send reports back about what people are actually doing let's turn our attention to the press now and suzanne moore has left the guardian after many years uh, after a letter signed by her now former Colleagues followed the publication of what many viewed as transphobic comments, although that was in a column from quite some months ago, wasn't it, Maggie? Did, did you read the article in question? Oh, yes, I did. And I, I'm, I've been following this quite a bit because um, although I don't know Suzanne more personally, obviously I've been writing on The Guardian for a long time. She's in her 60, early 60s now, and I, I think she has been contributing her column to the Guardian for at least 26 years or so and she is really a fine writer I must say I was gobsmacked uh, when I looked at the list of uh, 338 names with their occupations uh, who had all complained about um, her approach to um, if you like um, well I don't know whether you call it transphobia I mean her whole point was that um, gender is, is biological so a woman you can know how a woman is defined because of biology rather than how someone thinks they ought to be um that their gender ought to be assigned so uh i i she hasn't lost her ability to write she hasn't lost um her profile i'm sure she'll be gainfully employed somewhere else uh and as a freelance, I mean, she's entitled to move on, but it isn't a very pretty sight, I have to say. Do you understand why people signed the letter, though, Maggie? I mean, I'll just, I'll just quote a bit from Suzanne's article that caused this uh, petition. 
If you produce large immobile gametes, you are female, even if you were a frog. This is not complicated, nor is there a spectrum. Well, you know, that's what economists does. I, I don't really think that she... I mean, I, I did read it. It, it didn't um, upset me. Uh, and I think you ought to really look at her body of work over the years and see, you know, what a brave writer she can be. I remember one article she wrote which really moved me, and it, she was she was awarded the, um, I, I think she 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 was the columnist of the year uh, for a very frank and hard hitting article about abortion and about talking about it openly. I mean, this was probably 15 years ago. She she has hit many other subjects on the head. I think also remember that this is a particularly fraught area and there is probably um, something of an age divide over this issue as well. And she wasn't particularly helped by some of the people who rode in to um, kind of defend her as well. I mean, that, that, that's, that's kind of, that there are occasions when people um, almost um, pull um, paraffin on the fire, as it were. Now, I'm sorry to see her go. But I don't think she will be the loser in the long term. I think, unfortunately, the Guardian is. And when I saw all of those jobs, all of those people, and I thought of the cost of the Guardian at £2.20 every day if you wanted to buy a paper version, and I thought of the inability to close the loss, losses year on year, um, I began to think, well, I'm not quite sure um, if this paper is being run properly. I mean, it may not have offended uh, Maggie, Anne, but I suppose that's the point uh, for a lot of trans people reading it is, well, it offended me and I'm not being given this platform that Suzanne Moore is to put my point of view. Yeah, I think that's the. I mean, before I start, I should say I don't, I mean, I'm not trans and I don't make assumptions, but I'm assuming that nobody um, here is. So, you know, this is one of those kind of difficult areas and it is completely about... Um, there were parts of her article that seemed perfectly sensible and there were parts that seemed to me as dog whistles for transphobia. And this, it's not just one article. If 300 plus of your colleagues in an organisation that I think only has about 1,500 people in it are saying this is not right, this this can't, it's not sustainable. Um, it does really come down to, it's not a difference of opinion when it's actually something that's oppressing and hurting other people. And um, so I'm a feminist, but I'm an intersectional feminist. And that means that we want to make sure that we can understand different people's points of view and then come to a solution that works for all of us. This whole issue seems to completely lack trans voices and trans voices seem to always be the ones that are blamed for a problem. And I can use an example from my own life from this week. So I, I am from a minority group. I am home edu I was home educated. I've never been to school. I do quite a lot of stuff in that area. This week on Radio 4, they had uh, an item where they had someone from the local government association who went on and did wrong statistics and was very hostile and a politician who's meant to be leading a, an inquiry into home education who uh, gave a lot of misleading information. And nobody thought to book someone who was actually home educated to speak. And this is a similar thing. You know, you've got columnists piling stuff out again and again and again and never actually centering the voice of the people who are most affected by the issue. And that is the thing that I think we just need to stop doing. But Karen, I mean, this does echo what happened at the New York Times, doesn't it? And again, we're seeing a left-leaning publication tearing itself apart and it becoming easy for the Twitterati to point and say, 
or actually, I'll rephrase, it becoming easy for critics to point and say, look, these publications are at the will of the woke Twitterati. They will boycott free speech in the interests of, of their own internal struggles. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tricky one because whilst I'm entirely sympathetic to the people who rightly feel targeted when, um, when Suzanne Moore talks about trans issues, um, I also think, you know, to your point about there's a generational issue at play here, Maggie. I think you're right about that. I think we need to be able to allow for the possibility of thing people's minds to be changed about things over time and not demand some sort of purity of thought. Um, so whilst I, you know, I tend to disagree with a lot of what Suzanne Moore wrote, I also think it's, I'm, I'm a little bit wary of taking a, a columnist from an older generation and insisting that she immediately have adopt the same view of gender that all the rest of us have, um, or not all the rest of us, that, that some, some, some other people have. I think, you know, gender in particular is one area that people feel um, deeply personally about and that especially from an older generation of feminist, you know, and I have some experience with this as well. A lot of the time, the oppression that is directed at women is sex based oppression. It isn't gender based oppression. It's to do with reproductive rights. It's it's to do with um, healthcare treatment specific to female generated, female generated, female driven diseases. So I think it's very difficult to assume that somebody who has a long history of activism on those issues would immediately understand that gender is manifested differently. I think that's that's a bit of a heavy reach. And I think it would be helpful if we were to allow for an actual conversation to take place. But I think both Suzanne Moore and the people on the other side of the issue are not really open to that. Like it feels like everybody needs to change their minds a little bit um, or at least talk about the ways, the different ways that we think about things. When also for the, for the Guardian, Maggie, a sense that, you know, this is a newspaper for progressive people. So it's legitimately uh, reflecting the fact that within that community, there is a discussion, a conversation being had. The Guardian actually could probably do with a wider range of uh, columnists. And I can think of many who have been there so long that actually one almost knows what they're going to write before you look at their columns. So they do need a refresh. Well, there are. I mean, I, I mean you know, there are. There, I actually think it's, it's more to do with the array of columnists they have. And there are some who probably... Um, could be replaced with people who are, uh, you know, of, of a different generation and of a different outlook. I, I cannot, for the life of me, see really why this wasn't settled a bit more, um, a, a bit more calmly. And the Guardian itself could have stepped in and perhaps done some form of balancing act. I don't know. Anyway, Suzanne Moore has gone and that's it. Well, if if indeed this was the cause, I mean, we've all been talking as if the column she wrote six months ago was the reason she left The Guardian. She said on Twitter that she's leaving and that, that's all we know. Um, whilst we're thinking about the press as well, just a heads up that the Press Gazette's British Journalism Awards 2020 are taking place on the 9th of December uh, and we will put a link to the nominees in the show notes and on our website, the Media Podcast. Dot com. Um, uh, and finally, Anne, uh, a report about freelancers this week, which has shed some light on the number of unpaid hours worked by tele-freelancers. Uh, what is the average working week, according to the online freelancer community, Share My Telly Job? 
53.2, um, which apparently works out to, it's as though you're working two days extra each week. So effectively you're working seven days a week or you're just doing incredibly long days when you are actually at work. Yes. And according to Broadcast Magazine, disturbing findings from the pilot included more than one quarter of respondents saying they work plus 70 hour weeks, 62% working more than their contracted hours and 38% missing daily lunch breaks. Which is all pretty punishing, but then again, the thing with TV is it does tend to be built around sort of shooting days, which are very exhaustive, and then the rest of the time it isn't like that. So you kind of know that when you sign up for the job to an extent, don't you? I suppose it's about whether or not you've got enough balance in those cycles. So if you know you've got a really kind of busy month and then you've got the planned time in off the back of it of course when you're freelance and there's a pandemic and there's job cuts then the the temptation is to go from job to job to job to job to job and to never have the recovery if you are meant to have i mean the unions used to be quite good about stuff like paid breaks on shoots and proper sit downs and that kind of thing and you know it's not sustainable for people to run off adrenaline and cortisol and no sleep for their entire lives so we do need to make sure that there are some protections in place there's also the aspect of remuneration as well isn't there karen i mean i don't know the age of the people that responded to this survey but you'd imagine if the executive producer was on their feet all day but they were getting 100 grand they'd probably not be so bothered (laughs) the problem is the people that are running around getting the coffee for 18 hour shoot days isn't it yeah i mean it's when freelancing becomes uh, an excuse for exploitation rather than an opportunity for a worker to define their own working terms that it becomes problematic as you say if people are earning good money they're fine i think you also have to take into account you know at least when i was a freelancer i think you also have to take into account that a freelancer can't just unlike somebody who's been paid employment can't just assume that they know where their next job is coming from. So they've, in addition to doing their paid employment, they've also got to do all their business development. They've got to do all of their networking, um, which is also paid time and, and uh, unpaid time and, and, and work related. So um, it can be re- really troubling. But then on the other hand, I think to your point, it is absolutely right that there will also be long periods of time, especially when you haven't been able to do that business development, when you're sitting around without paid work to do. And then, you know, the risk and the insecurity that comes from not knowing where your next paycheck is coming from in those circumstances might cause someone to be willing to um, give more of their time um, at, a, at a less reasonable rate than they otherwise would. So it's dangerous. Um, on the other hand, it is also there are advantages to freelancing. There are reasons people do it. And Maggie, in the old days, when the broadcasters used to make more of their own programming, maybe this was a bit less of an issue because people were unionised or they were staff. And so they'd have that ebb and flow built into their working cycle. It's indies, isn't it, that are employing quite so many freelancers. And so companies like Channel 4 or Channel 5 can commission a program and not really have to think about whether what they're asking is too demanding of people to actually generate because that decision is then up to the independent production company they've commissioned. No, I agree. And I think that the whole sector needs sorting out and looked at. And Beck, too, has been very um, vociferous about this, particularly because it's been such a terrible year for both TV production, which was stopped and then it began again. And so I, your point, there are obviously productions that have had to be rushed onto air, not necessarily with good outcomes, where I can well imagine people working all hours. For example, I know the bridge which came out on Channel 4 uh, was a Sunday night show. It was basically commissioned and delivered within 12 weeks. Well, you can imagine what those staff, what, not the story, the freelancers were doing in those 12 weeks to get it a, f- a five-part series at nine o'clock on Sunday night, which actually didn't do very well. But imagine trying to get that all organized. Um, you, you can, you can probably, probably are doing 100 hours a week. But the whole 
situation is one of exploitation at the moment, I'm afraid, because there are so many people either uh, not any of the government schemes and they are also when they get jobs just really glad to have them uh, there does need to be a reset in the in, in the labor market for broadcasting because it's hugely unequal but we're now having studios being built by the streamers and by uh hollywood producers all across the uk and it suggests to me that uh there's going to be a big demand for property and properly trained people so it could be that the boot will be on the other foot in the medium term okay there is you'll all be thrilled to know just enough time to squeeze in our legendary media podcast quiz which uh this week concerns the winners of the 2020 edinburgh tv awards uh, announced on twitter this week by manya chihuahua um for each question i will give you the names of three runners up all you have to do is give me the name of the award for which they were nominated and for a bonus point, tell me the winner. You buzz in with your name when you know the answer. So Karen, you will say... Karen. Anne, you will say... Anne. And Maggie, you will say... Maggie. <laughs> I'm pleased you're still there. <laughs> I was certain you'd hang up. Uh, ready? Let's go. Here's award number one. Buzz in with your name when you know the answer. Three of the runners-up are Kathy Burke, Graham Norton and Anton Deck. But what was the award? Karen. Karen. Was was best TV presenter. It was best TV presenter. And for a bonus point, who was the winner? I, I cannot tell you because I do wrote, it was two people and one of them was named Gilligan, but I didn't recognise the names. So, <laughs> so other than that, I can't oh, tell you. Big nasty, <laughs> Go on, Maggie, you can steal nasty. it. Go on. Maggie, Big Nasty, big nasty and Mo, Mo Gilligan. <laughs> it was. Worth it just to hear you say Big yeah. Nasty. Okay, bonus point to you. Uh, here's award number two. The runners-up were Taskmaster, Gogglebox, and Anton Deck's Saturday Night Takeaway. But what was the award? Best Entertainment Programme. Buzzing with your name when Maggie, you know the answer. Sorry. Maggie. Maggie. Best Entertainment. It was Best Entertainment Series. Yes, I will give you that. Uh, and for a bonus point, the winner. Oh, dear. I don't know. Made by Naked um, Television for BBC Three. Oh, the jury said the so rap, unusual, raw game. and real. The rap game. The Maggie, rap game, the rap correct. Game. Maggie is storming the media podcast quiz for the first time in history. This is a historic moment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, award number three, here it is. The uh, runners-up were A Day in the Life of Coronavirus Britain, Charlie Brooker's Antiviral Wipe, The Martin Lewis Money Show, A Coronavirus Special Live. But what was the award? What do those shows all have in common? And um, was Anne. it something like Best Factual or...? No, it, I'm pleased to say it wasn't because it gives us a clear yeah. winner. Uh, <laughs> it was, in fact, <laughs> the uh, Special Award for Creativity in Crisis because they were all shows made about the coronavirus, you see. Um, and, uh, well, Maggie, you've won the quiz, but would you like a bonus point for telling us who the winner was of that prize? <laughs> I mean, can I steal that one? I know the winner, I just didn't know the category. Go on, Anne, you can steal it. I think it. that was Hospital. It was. Hospital fighting COVID-19 for BBC Two. Uh, well, congratulations, Maggie. You have won the media podcast quiz. Gosh. I'm I'm blushing with achievement. <laughs> <laughs> you never knew on such such a mundane Thursday that you could end the day with such pride. Uh, congratulations! Uh, thanks to Maggie Brown uh, and to my other guests Karen Robinson and Anne Charles. If you like what we're up to here on the Media Podcast and you want to help us keep making it, then visit themediapodcast.com/slash/donate and select an amount to keep us going all year round. If you make a donation, even a small one, you could have a future episode dedicated to you. You can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free via our website, 
podcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Peter Price, and the Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.